On March 1st, 1961, President John F. Kennedy established the Peace Corps. And today, most, most people know what the Peace Corps does, at least generally, that it is a uh, generally a two-year program for international volunteer work. You go to the developing world, you help with various projects, education or community development, um, health projects. It's a pretty well-known organization, has good name recognition. But when it first came out in 1961, nobody had any idea what it was supposed to be until the Ad Council came up with one of the most iconic slogans ever. The Peace Corps, it's the toughest job you'll ever love. It's a brilliant slogan because it captures the essence of the work. It's the toughest job you'll ever love. So you're going to go volunteer in developing countries. It's going to be tough. It's going to be harder than anything you've ever done. But at the same time, it's going to be incredibly rewarding. You're going to love it. And that one slogan... They captured the idea that the Peace Corps is the coolest thing that you could do. Sure, you're not going to get paid for it, but you're going to do something incredibly rewarding, and you will be one of the elite few who can handle the tough job of the Peace Corps. And it worked. In 1962, one year after the Peace Corps was launched, more than 30,000 people, 30,000 people applied to the Peace Corps. And by 1965, three years later, more than 1,000 people a week were clipping out the ads that they found in magazines and newspapers and sending in their volunteer forms to join the Peace Corps. Uh, So I love that slogan. I just think it's misapplied. I'm sure that the Peace Corps is very tough, and I'm sure it's very rewarding. I just don't think it's the toughest job you'll ever love. I think that that title belongs to being a disciple of Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus is the toughest job that you'll ever love. At least I think that's what Paul might say. So if you're just visiting with us today, you're coming in at the end of a series that we're studying in the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, So if you've got a Bible, you want to open up to 2 Corinthians. If you don't have one, you want to open up uh, the Black Pew Bibles that look like this. You can grab one of those. It's page 969. 969 on that one. If you're you're a different Bible, it's going to be a different number probably. Um, But just open up to 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, and this, this letter, this book in the Bible, it's a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the city of Corinth, and they were a troublesome church. Paul had founded the church, but then they had all sorts of trouble with them. Um, and as we get to the end of the letter, one of the big issues that he's bringing home again is that this church had been taken in by some false teachers. Um, they were these folks that had come in, and they claimed to be super Christians, but they were really devils in disguise, false teachers that were leading them astray. And, and they looked good, They had a lot of money, they were successful, they spoke well, they dressed well, they seemed impressive, and so the Corinthians were following them. They were getting sucked in with with the false message. And Paul is trying to remind them, trying to to tell them uh, that these guys are false teachers and they should be following him, but they don't want to because he looks weak, he's poor, he's had all these troubles in his life, he seems like a failure. So they compare the super apostles with Paul and they think, we're going to go with the super apostles. So again and again in this letter, Paul has to try to fight this battle to defend himself against the false teachers, not because he's on an ego trip and needs everybody to follow him, but because he sees these false teachers leading the church astray and he wants to save them for Jesus. And so in chapter 11, one more time, uh, Paul begins to defend himself. And he, he does it by laying out for them what a true disciple of Jesus really looks like. 
A true disciple of Jesus is not someone who has a life of comfort and wealth and worldly success and victory after victory. But instead, it's tough. It's a really tough job. In fact, it's the toughest, most costly, most difficult way you could ever choose to live your life. But at the same time, Paul says it's totally worth it. Being a disciple of Jesus is the toughest job you'll ever love. So we're going to pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 11. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. And you'll notice as I do in the first paragraph, Paul is simply uh, explaining how foolish this whole exercise is. He doesn't want to have to compare himself to the false teachers. He doesn't want to have to brag about his accomplishments. He thinks that's just ridiculous. And yet he's being forced to do it for the sake of convincing them that he's reliable. And then you'll see in the second uh, section, starting in verse like 21, how he begins to list his accomplishments. And when you see him listing his accomplishments, you realize how tough the Christian life really is. So 2 Corinthians 11, verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourself. For you bear with it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor of, under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. All right, it kind of stops in the middle there. Well, that's enough for us today. Amazing passage. What I, want, what I want to prove to you today, my claim is that this passage teaches that being a disciple of Jesus is the toughest job you'll ever love. And so to prove that, I just want to walk through that sentence phrase by phrase and show you where I'm getting it. So first of all, being a disciple of Jesus. You know, this, this passage is about Paul, right? And yet I'm making a universal claim. I'm saying that this is a pattern for every follower of Jesus. So the first question you have to ask is, is that correct? Is this a passage that applies to all Christians, or is this unique to Paul? Now, I don't think it's unique to Paul, and I think that what's going on here is, like many other times, Paul is using his life as an example for how we're supposed to live our lives. In fact, in the, letter, the first letter he wrote to this same group of people, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, 
He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He says, imitate me. The model for Paul's life is Jesus. He's saying, as I imitate Christ, and inasmuch as I'm doing that well, go ahead and imitate me. And so he's holding up for the Corinthians his own life as a model. And that's because that's what he's doing here. Paul's just imitating Jesus. If you remember the story of Jesus in his life, what's the basic storyline of Jesus' life? The basic storyline of the life of Jesus is not comfort and ease and wealth and success upon success upon success. The story of Jesus' life is sacrificial suffering out of love for others. One of my favorite verses is Mark 10, 45 summarizes the message of Jesus. He says, the Son of Man, talking of himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be served. He didn't come to have an easy life. He had the easy life. When he was in heaven with the Father and with the Spirit and with all the angels, he had the easy life. He had everything. He didn't come to get more of that. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Earlier in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 8, verse 9, you see the same thing. It says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We were all poor, not physically poor, spiritually poor. We were alienated from God. We were condemned to hell because of our sins. And the only hope that we had was someone coming and paying that debt, someone rich, someone who could afford to do it. That was Jesus. Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned, and yet he died for us, giving his riches, his righteousness, his acceptance before the Father to us so that we could become rich, adopted sons and daughters of the King. That's what Jesus did. He became poor so that we could become rich. He sacrificed so that we could be blessed. And that's the pattern that Paul is following here as well. He is sacrificing. He is giving of himself out of love for others. Now, it's different work, right? Jesus' work was unique. His work was redemptive. He was the one who gave him life, his life to save others. Paul's work is then to take that message to those who don't know it. Say, so Jesus made it possible to be reconciled to God. Now, I'm going to go tell you about it. And I don't care what it costs me or how much I have to endure to make that happen. I'm going to do it because I love you. I don't care if I get shipwrecked or beaten or go hungry or naked because I got to get this message out. I got to imitate Christ. And to the extent that I imitate Christ, you should imitate me. That's what he's saying. So, this story here, as personal as it is and as profoundly unique as it is, it is also a pattern for us that just like Jesus sacrificially gave of himself to love others, and Paul sacrificially gave of himself to take the gospel to others, we also are called to this same mission. Now, around here, we like to summarize this mission with three phrases. You find them on your bulletin. Love God, love people, and multiply disciples. Not unique to us. It's a common way to phrase the Christian mission. But we believe that that's the calling that God has placed on every single Christian, not just missionaries, not just pastors, uh, not just Paul, not Jesus, but every Christian. We're called to this mission of loving God, first of all, being reconciled to God through Jesus. And then out of that love for him, overflowing in love for others, for our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family, those that we don't even know, the needy, just reaching out with love to them. 
And as we go out with love, we take the gospel with us and we, we invite people to follow Jesus too. And as they follow Jesus, they grow in that and they become disciples and they pick up the cause and we multiply and reach the world in that way. That's the mission. And it's everybody's mission. It's not just Paul's. It's not just Jesus's. It's ours. When I was a kid growing up at Grace Presbyterian Church in Peoria, they had a sign over the door as you left. It said, you are now entering your mission field. I keep saying this. We should get one of those. Because <laughs> it's true. It's true. As you leave here, you are entering your mission field. You are a missionary. I am a missionary. And we are going out in the world with the same mission that Paul had, namely to love other people, to share Christ with them, and help them to know him too. That's the job we have, and it's a tough job. It's a tough job. Being a disciple of Jesus is the toughest job. I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you. Paul sure doesn't. As you look at the litany of things that he endured as he tried to love God and love people and multiply disciples, it is staggering. And you see two main kinds of suffering that he experienced. There's external suffering and internal suffering. So first, the external suffering. This would be suffering that comes from the outside, so not, not the inner turmoil, not emotional stuff, but just bad things that happen that you experience in your life. And most of Paul's list, I think, falls under this category of external suffering. Uh, you see him saying, you know, he was beaten five times at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Uh, so that would have been a punishment that was given based on an Old Testament law that said you could only whip somebody 40 times. Because they were really concerned about breaking the law, they said, well, let's just whip them 39 times in case somebody loses count. That way we don't accidentally do 41. And so he got whipped five times, 39 lashes. And because it was the hands of the Jews, we can assume it was because they were doing it for, because he was blaspheming in their estimation. He was claiming that Jesus was the Christ, that they should follow Jesus. And they said, no, that's wrong. So they whipped him. He was also beaten, it said, uh, with rods in verse 25. That would have been a Roman punishment. So he didn't just get it from the Jews, he got it from the Romans. And they didn't care about blasphemy, but they cared a lot about law and order. And one of the tactics you see that happens in Acts of the opponents of Paul is that they would whip up crowds and riots to oppose him. The Romans would get upset about the riots, and so they would arrest Paul as the instigator, and they would beat him. He said three times, I was beaten with rods. He was stoned which means the people took stones and they threw it at him until they thought he was dead. You can read about that in Acts 14. They literally thought he was dead. He was left for dead. And then he got up and crawled away and continued sharing the gospel. He was shipwrecked three times. He faced danger everywhere he went. And he couldn't trust anybody. He says he's, uh, he, he, the, the Jews are his enemies. Of course, he's in danger from my own people. I can't, can't even go to my people. They, they're opposed to me. But I can't go to the Gentiles because they're opposed to me. And he says, I'm in danger even from false brothers. I can't even, I'm not even safe in church. There's nowhere I can go that I don't have enemies. And his poverty, his poverty calls to all sorts of trouble. He didn't have to be poor. He was an educated guy, very smart, obviously. Well-trained. He was also a skilled craftsman. He could make tents. He could have devoted himself to that, had a comfortable career, but he didn't. He gave that up, and he embraced poverty so that he could take the word of God to people who had never heard it. And because of that, he went hungry when he should never have gone hungry. He was poorly clothed in, in, in difficult circumstances. He should have had plenty of clothes. Uh, he, 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 he was homeless. He, he suffered so much voluntarily because the mission was more important than his comfort. 
So that's an external suffering. And now, now I'm not saying that your life is going to look exactly like that, if you follow Jesus. Your mileage may vary. Probably not going to get beaten with rods around here for loving people. Uh, you're probably not going to get whipped. Uh, probably not going to get shipwrecked. But if you try to love people and love God and multiply disciples, you're going to experience some external suffering. It's just going to happen. As an example, uh, there's a ministry called Safe Families for Children. Some of you guys know about this. Uh, we've done it a couple times in our family. It's a Christian ministry that tries to step in before foster care. So it's families where the kids are, you know, maybe close, or there's a, a situation where they, they might have to get taken with, by the Department of uh, Child Welfare and, uh, and be taken away from the families. But Safe Families is a Christian ministry that tries to be a bridge there and say, if you just want to voluntarily give your kids to us for a while, we'll watch over them, help them, you get back on your feet, reunite families, and we'll move forward. Really great ministry, really great idea. Uh, and so we love that. We thought, well, this is, this is Christian living, right? We love God. God loves the vulnerable. We want to move towards the vulnerable and help them. And so we said, all right, we'll do it. We'll do it. And we did it twice. And you guys know we didn't do an especially great job of it. We just did it, right? We're not, we're amazing. Um, we did it, and it was good, but it was also tough. There were a lot of things that made it tough. One of the things that made it tough was that in one of the placements, we got lice. Um, Jen might disagree, but getting lice isn't as bad as getting beaten with rods. <laughs> but it's bad. I mean, it's tough. It was hard. We got four people with long hair. Um, it's tough. A lot of suffering. It made our lives harder. It cost us money. It cost us time. It was tough. And it was a direct result of trying to live a life of love. Right? It would not have happened. It could have been completely avoided if we had not done that. If we said no to the mission, we could have avoided the suffering, but because we loved, there was some suffering. And that's how it works. That's what happens when you reach out in love to people. There is always external suffering. I mean, you, you go home, you, you try to be nice to your neighbor, and they, they need something, and so you say, well, I can loan you that tool. And you feel pretty good about that because you're loving your neighbor. And then they bring it back, and it's broken. Okay? I mean, it happens. That never would have bro- if I didn't loan that to that person, it never would have broken. I'd still have my tool. It'd be perfect. Or maybe you go on a mission trip. You feel compelled. You say, I, gotta, I need to go. I need to go. I'm going to be a part of this. And you go on a mission trip and you get sick. You never would have gotten sick like that if you hadn't gone to that place and drunk the water. But you went. Or maybe you give generously. You feel compelled to give to help someone who's in need. And then like the next day, you get a bill that you could have totally paid for if you hadn't given to help that other person, but now you're struggling. You know, sometimes when you invite the stranger into your house, they bring lice. And that's just part of the mission. That's the sort of suffering you should expect as a disciple of Jesus, that when you love God and love people and multiply disciples, bad things will happen as a result of it. But that's not the worst. I don't think that's the worst. The worst is the internal suffering. Paul has this deep emotional pain that comes from loving other people and helping them walk with Jesus. You see it at the end of his list in verse 28 and 29. It says, apart from other things, <clears throat> there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? 
So in addition to this physical suffering, this external suffering, almost as the, as the climax of his list, he says, to top it all off, there's the daily pressure on me of my burden for all the people that I love. He loves these churches. He sees himself as a spiritual father. And like all good parents, he sees the potential that his kids have for making bad choices. And when they struggle, like all good parents, he feels that pain. He says, who is weak and I'm not weak? And when they fall, when some false teacher comes in and starts to lead them astray, he gets angry. He says, who, who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? In addition to the external suffering of the beatings and the shipwrecks and the hunger, he's also experiencing the internal sufferings of the pain of the people in their lives and their, their walk with Jesus. So when you love somebody, it opens you up to all sorts of suffering. For those of you who are married, you know this. When you got married, you know, previously all that mattered to you was if you were happy. But now you, you fall in love with this other person and your happiness is tied to their happiness. Their life affects your life. Your life can be good, but if their life is bad, your life is bad. Or having kids. Having kids is terrible. You know, you... You used to be in charge of your own life. You can make these decisions. You, you're, you're, your happiness depends on your, on your choices, but now your happiness depends on their choices, and you can't control those choices. And depending on what age they are, they don't even care what you have to say about anything. And if they do well and they make good choices, you're happy. If they do poorly and make bad choices, it can devastate you. So it happens in every relationship. You open yourself up to someone else and now you experience the internal suffering of loving them. It happens in churches. If you open yourself up to really be known in a church community, you're no longer independent. You're not anonymous. Now your joys and sorrows are shared by me and, and, and my joys and sorrows are shared by you. And as you rejoice with those who rejoice, you also mourn with those who mourn. If you do open up to your neighbors and get to know them as a person and you stop just kind of driving in, open your garage door, get inside, get out of your car, go, go into your house and then get in your car, drive out, close the garage door, never talk to your neighbors at all. If you, if, you, if you get away from that and you actually start to know your neighbors as people, now you start to have an obligation to them. Now you start to care. You care about whether she knows Jesus. You care about the problems that she's facing. You care about the needs that she has. You might even feel obligated to start to help to meet some of those needs. And that caring becomes a burden, a part of your daily concern for them, the pressure of concern. And the more people you love, the more that pressure builds, and the more suffering you have to endure. I think those of you who participated in our project last week to help uh, work on a house for Habitat for Humanity, I think you felt this. Uh, where we were able to do a good thing, like this is clearly in our mission, we're going we're to do this, we're going to help somebody uh, with this house, you know, providing for them. It was good, it was encouraging, but, but the people who were getting the house were there. And some of you talked with them, and now you get to know them. And you realize they didn't just need a house, that, wow, okay, so their daughter has this unique brain condition where her skull was malformed, and, and her, her, I don't fully understand it, but her brain is, is like moving in her head and it's crushing her spinal cord and causing all sorts of trouble and she needs surgery and she, they need help and, and and it's like i just came here to build your house right but now this is now this is in my prayers and now i'm concerned about you i didn't know you before but now i know you and i know your problems and i don't i can't fix your problems i'm not the messiah to fix your problems but 
but now I care. And that's what happens. You, 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 you reach out, you move towards people, and now the more people you know, the more you open yourself up to them, the more their problems become a part of your daily pressure. And the more my problems become part of your daily pressure. And yours are mine, and that's how it works. So what do we do? I mean, I suppose we could just hide, just shut ourselves off from everybody, never get to know your neighbors, never... Uh, never go deep at church, just stay on a service level. Never volunteer to help the needy because you might find out that they have needs. And that has some appeal. So C.S. Lewis recognized that in his book, The Four Loves. He was honest. He said this. It's kind of a long quote, bear with me. He says, Of all arguments against love... None makes so strong an appeal to my nature as, careful, this might lead you to suffering. When I respond to that appeal, I seem to myself to be a thousand miles away from Christ. If I'm sure of anything, I'm sure that his teaching was never meant to confirm my preference for safe investments and limited liabilities. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. To love it all is to be vulnerable. To engage in the Christian mission of loving God, loving people, multiplying disciples, is to open yourself up to all sorts of pain. But what's the alternative? As Lewis put it, the alternative is to live in the hell of your own isolation. Sure, you're cut off from all the suffering of love, but you're also cut off from all the joy. And it's the joy that makes it worth it. That's why I'm saying that being a disciple of Jesus is hands down the toughest job in the world. But it's the toughest job you'll ever love. The key verses we, we didn't read yet. I'm holding them back. So if you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, jump ahead a little bit. Verses 9 and 10. This is where Paul says, here's why I'm doing this. He's recounting an experience of God communicating to him, and he says in verse 9, but he said, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul just got done boasting, bragging about how hard his life is. And he's bragging about these weaknesses, the external suffering, the internal suffering of a, a disciple of Jesus feels. And, and here he explains why he's bragging about that, why that's not failure. 
He's bragging about it because it's in our weaknesses that God shows up. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. It's when we experience the weakness and the suffering of living with God on mission that God shows up and fills us with His strength. And when that happens, that's the joy. That's what makes it worth it. God's on mission. He's a missionary God. God is about loving people and multiplying disciples, and He's busy doing that. And the cool thing is that when you do that too, when you step out in faith, you begin to walk with Him and do the things that God does, He's there with you. He shows up in your lives in ways that you've never experienced before. And you get a closeness and an intimacy with God that you can never get unless you're on mission with Him. It's kind of like when you're a kid, if your dad is the sort of guy who, who's always fixing cars in the garage, right? If you wanted to spend time with dad, what'd you have to do? You'd go out in the garage. You'd go fix cars with him because that's what he's doing. You want to be with your dad? You want to have the intimacy and experience? You fix cars with your dad and you have that closeness, okay? God's not much of a car guy. He's not interested in fixing cars. He's interested in fixing lives. He loves to get out there in the mess of people's lives and fix things, helping real people, loving real people, saving them through Jesus. And if you want intimacy with God, if you want to be close to your Father, you need to get out there where He is. Get on mission with Him. Join with Him in the process, the messy, painful process of helping people in their real lives. That's what makes it the toughest job you ever love is that when you do it, God shows up. And he says, my grace, you're weak? You're weak? Okay, perfect. My grace is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. And that's why Paul says, for the sake of Christ, I'm content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. He's saying, this is a tough job, but I love it. I love it. Because God's doing it too. And he's there with me in ways I've never experienced apart from the shipwrecks, apart from the hardships. Uh, to put it a different way, kind of the opposite way of looking at it. I'd say many of us have easy lives we don't love instead of tough lives we love. We have easy lives we don't love. Prayer, we know we should pray, but it just doesn't seem that important. We know we're supposed to read the Bible, but it's not that interesting. And God feels distant. Why? because we aren't living on mission. It's not that God's abandoned you. He just doesn't want to spend all day sitting on the couch watching Netflix. God is on mission. God wants to be out there loving people, reaching the lost, and he's inviting you and me to join with him. And when we do it, it's tougher than watching TV. It's tougher than fishing. It's tougher than any of the things that we like to do. But it's better because he's there. allow me another long quote. John Piper is a pastor. He does a really good job of explaining this concept in relation to prayer. And we wonder, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Why is my prayer life so weak? And the answer is that we're not, we're not using prayer the way it's meant to be used. It's, it's a tool for mission to empower us to do the work that God has called us to do, but we've turned it into a, a, a vending machine for our selfish needs. Or Piper has a better image. Let me read this for you. He says, I do not tire of saying to our church, 
the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of a believer is that they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you believe that life is war, you cannot acknowledge what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It's as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit, handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters, and said, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished, and to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send an air cover when you or your partners need it. But what have millions of Christians done? They have stopped believing that we are in a war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peacetime and prosperity. And what did they do with the walkie-talkie? They tried to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy houses and cabins and boats and cars. Not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den. Ouch. We're missing the power of prayer because we're avoiding the tough work of being a disciple. There's no power in prayer because we're using it like an intercom. How's it supposed to be used? Well, what happens, you, you, you step out in love, you start to engage with somebody, and all of a sudden they drop a big problem on you. So I don't know what to do with this. I don't know, I can't, this is beyond my capability. It's not what I signed up for. I just, I just wanted to loan you a tool, and now you're telling me about your marriage exploding. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help. I'm not a marriage counselor. What do you do? So I can pray for you. You pray with them. You start to pray for them. He's like, God, help. I, I don't know what to do. Can, can, can you please fix this? Can you please help these people? And you, and you begin to, to work in that. You walk in that. You know what happens? God shows up. God shows up. That, this is my secret, by the way. If you've been helped at all by me and my pastoring here, you come to me with your problems and be like, why well, can't fix that? I know somebody who can. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray with you. We're going to walk through this together. And God has showed up. Please make sure you are giving all credit to him. I have not done anything. God has done it. Because we're praying and we're using His tools in His way, and He's, he's, he's there. Okay, and this is in sharp contrast to my prayer life before I started loving people. It was sporadic. It was uh, pretty much non-existent. Never saw God do anything in response to my prayers because I was using it as an intercom. Please make my life easier. But God wants to help us to accomplish the mission. The same thing goes for the Bible, for Sunday worship, gathering here, uh, gathering in smaller groups, everything that we do. If you're not living as a, as a disciple of Jesus on mission, you're probably not too interested in the Bible. You probably don't see Sunday morning worship as a lifeline that you need every week. You're probably not engaged in, in prayer or in small groups with other believers to encourage you in the work. But once you start to step out, once you begin to love people and get in their lives and help them to know Jesus, and you experience the suffering that goes along with that, you go, hello, that's what it's for. Oh, that's, there's some good stuff in here. You ever read this? This is really helpful for helping you know how to love people and, and make disciples. This is really good. It was never relevant before because I wasn't doing it. 
You start to pray like you never did before. Sunday worship is, is life-giving for you. And you start to invite up, you should come to this. This is helpful, right? Because all of these things exist as means of God's grace to give us the power that we need to do the work that he has given us to do. And the work is so hard that you absolutely can't do it without the means of God's grace in your life. Being a disciple is hard. It is the toughest job ever. But it is the toughest job you'll ever love. Because it's when you do this that you experience true intimacy with God. So I encourage you this week, don't, don't try to save the world this week. Try to do something, okay? Take a step of faith. Reach out in love. Introduce yourself to a neighbor that you've never met before or that you've met before and you've forgotten their name or you're too embarrassed to talk to them and it's been five years. Inter- invite a coworker to read the Bible with you. Say, have you ever read the Bible? You want to just read the Gospel of Mark together, find out who this Jesus guy is? Invite somebody from church out to lunch. Move a little bit beyond superficiality and say, I'd like to get to know you as a person with all your joys and sorrows. Uh, help somebody out in need. And, and as you do these things, you'll encounter some resistance. You'll have some suffering, some difficulty. But if you turn to God in that difficulty, you will find that he shows up in power and presence that you may never have experienced before, and it makes it all worth it. Being a disciple of Jesus is the toughest job you'll ever love. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I need this. I need this sermon so much. I am, just want to be the chief repenter. And I acknowledge my desire for comfort, my aversion to suffering, and my self-reliance. But Lord, we believe your word, we believe these truths, and we pray that you would help us to engage in the mission, to love people, to love the people you put in front of us. They're everywhere. The mission field is there. Help us to love, to step out in faith, and would you please show up in abundant ways as we do, that you would do the work only you can do of saving and changing lives. In Jesus' name.